Welcome to an encore episode of the Remarkable Retail Podcast as Steve and I take a break and recharge for Season 6, launching January 17th, 2023, presented by Marketile. We've removed the current retail events news and have gotten right to the episode's heart. That's right. We thought during our hiatus, we would bring back some of our most popular episodes from our back catalog, which is now getting pretty extensive. And we also are lucky to have lots of new listeners and subscribers. So perhaps they have not heard these before. The last Encore episode that we piloted was top rated. And yes, as you know, we are all about testing new things here on the Remarkable Retail Podcast. This episode was one of my favorites. You know, I've been working through much of my career to describe the future of retail, omni-channel, physical, bricks and clicks. Steve, I I really think you nailed it with this one. Well, thanks. Yeah, the the topic is the hybridization of retail. It's something that I first wrote about in my book, Remarkable Retail, and then I've revisited it in some other writing and some of my keynotes. And uh, we did this featured episode on it. And what it's about is both the hybridization from a physical and digital perspective, but even more so, it's how retailers are changing their go-to-market strategies with different formats, different supply chains. So it's more than just that blurring of the lines. And when I first wrote about it and started speaking about it, it was a bit more of a prediction. Mm-hmm. And uh, now a lot of it is coming coming true. So I thought it was worth going back and giving a listen and see if that prompts some some new ideas for folks that listen to it. Now, before we get to this great episode, a reminder to the listeners, if you happen to be at the NRF Big Show in New York City, we are on the stage Monday, January 16th, 1230 with Gretchen Gans from the Container Store, presented by Market Dial. Steve and I will be there, and there's a book signing opportunity, and uh, it's going to be a whole, whole lot of fun. So look forward to seeing you there. And the season premiere of our show launches, season six, launches January 17th, coming right up. But for now... Let's get right to this episode. So, Steve, let's take the opportunity to dive into this recent article that you published in Forbes, this hybridization of retail. I mean, when I start thinking about retail and its evolution over the past decades, like over the course of our career, it started with basic stores who or a catalog, right? You had kind of two Mm -hmm. ways to order. And then along comes e-commerce, which in its early days, I remember it was just basically like a catalog on steroids, plus people could go and order themselves. But it's really evolved to be so much more. And I think COVID's had a role in the, if not the evolution itself, the pace of the evolution, the acceleration, as our friend Carl Boutet would say. Right, right. Yeah, you know, this is an idea. I felt really compelled to write the article for a couple reasons. One is that I think there's some changes that are going on, which we can talk about in more detail in a second, I suppose. But there's some changes that are going on in retail that are really underappreciated. There's so much attention on the acceleration of e-commerce and all things digital that I think we're, we're losing some of the nuances and some of the things that really retailers have to spend more time on. So I wanted to get that word out. But also it was an idea that I explored in my book uh, but I don't know that I fully got to explore it as much as in retrospect I, I might have. So, mm. But yeah, if you think about retail, really through the 90s, for the most part, you had two basic ways to shop. 97, 98% of it was go to a store, pick out what you want, take it home yep. with you. And then yep. you had mail order catalog, which was, you know, you get catalog in the mail. 
and you look at it, and then you phone, fax, and eventually order online. So it was pretty binary. You know, there wasn't a lot of overlap. Yes, a few of the catalog players had some stores, but not a lot. Yeah. And overall, just represented a very tiny percentage. Yeah. Then e-commerce starts to come along, you know, more or less late 90s. And it's a better catalog for the most part in right, that right. Uh, it's certainly a different experience to be able to, you know, experience a brand on your computer do all the things that the web allows you to do much more conveniently, place an order directly, certainly from a marketing standpoint. Uh, it created a you know whole different way of communicating with the customer via email and so forth. Yeah. So, and, and, so, and it went beyond the, the limitations of the print media itself, right? I mean, I've run catalogs right, before, and right. they're a big, long process, of course, for big shops like Sears or Williams-Sonoma, they've got that process down. But, you know, it's weeks not days in terms of I have a product, it's a lot of planning, it's a big machine, and then ultimately you're limited to you know the ROI of print catalogs and mail distribution. So that broke that wide open, right? We can have a catalog of millions of items, probably was what kind of spurred you know guys like Bezos to start creating e-commerce is, wait a minute, I don't, I don't have to worry about print costs. I can have, a, I can have no end to the number of items. That, that's probably one of the big, as you said, uh, you know, better catalog, right? Yeah, I mean, the endless aisle, so-called endless aisle, yep. started to become much more of a thing. The immediacy, the changing in marketing dynamics. So those were huge. I'm not trying to diminish it uh, because, obviously, we we went from a place where, you know, this form of direct-to-consumer, previously mail-order catalog to e-commerce started to grow quite dramatically. But the thing that I think was interesting for probably the first really 10 or 15 years of e-commerce is that the the distribution side of it really didn't change retail all that much. Stores themselves, I mean, they had competitive pressure from e-commerce, but mm. stores themselves didn't change very much by virtue of the growth of e-commerce. And the supply chain, for the most part, didn't change very much. The typical way, I mean, if you take music and games, you know, things that can be digitally downloaded out of the equation, but, you know, more of a tangible product, still, and, and certainly Amazon is the best example of this, we're largely talking about very large automated, eventually automated distribution centers shipping a parcel through the mail to your home or office, which is exactly what Land's End and Williamson mm. Home and Sir Latab and all these guys were doing before. We're now just operating at a much greater scale because this direct-to-consumer piece is not 2 or 3%. Now it's 7 8 9%. Right. But there really wasn't. It's, it still was kind of a dualistic or binary world, which is here's this direct-to-consumer, which is mostly from a centralized distribution center, shipped to you at your home, and stores largely not changing very much. What started to happen... Um, largely by virtue of buy online, pick up in store, and buy online, return to store, and in some cases, being able to check store visibility or um, inventory visibility online. Right then, you started to get stores and online or, or direct to consumer merging a little bit. So there, there certainly has been this growing uh, blurring of the lines between digital and physical, both because of uh, consumer shopping behavior of of digitally influenced 
purchases in stores. But but really, they, a lot of that became um, or remained pretty separate. What I think has been what picked up steam pre-COVID, but has been taken to a whole new level now, is the hybrid nature of the shopping experience mm. and how that has really started to transform the stores themselves and the supply chain in particular in pretty profound ways. What, what, what in your mind were the antecedents to that? I mean, as I think of terms like omni-channel and cross-channel, those things were present in the before time. I mean, in the years uh, pre-COVID, you had curbs. I mean, you had, you had the beginnings of many, many things. Even back to the catalog area, you had places in the store where you could pick up your catalog order. Sure. Um, and you had curbside pickup and, and these felt like the antecedents. So they were there. So what's the, what's changed now? Is it, is it, you know, if you were in store design 20 years ago, you probably 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you may have been asked to cooper together some kind of process where people could pick stuff up and drop stuff off. But I, I, what is so fundamentally different in your mind than it's beyond omni-channel? It's, it's this full hybridization. And, and I think you break this down in a couple of really interesting areas so we get to un, unpack this, like the store. Let's start with the store. What What's so fundamentally different that you need people... You want people now to sit up and pay attention and say something has meaningfully changed in the way you need to think about the store. Well, I think some of these forces have been building for quite some time. I mean, the consumer shopping behavior, you know, I've been saying and others have been saying for a long time, consumers are really brand centric. Like they don't make nearly the distinction between stores and online that a lot of retailers think. Um, but, but as more product or as more, um, shopping behavior moved to being digitally led and more retailers started to, to build these functionalities, you know, whether that's existing legacy retailers or mm-hmm. some of these newer brands that really built, built for an omni-channel world, as much as I hate the term omni-channel, but basically said, you yeah, know, yeah. customers, the channel, we understand yeah. some customers are going to research online, go to a store, other people are going to go to a store, then buy online later, right? So so there's just this constant building of this consumer behavior. I think the thing that really started to tip the scales, though, were smart devices. Because hmm. before smart devices, going online, so to speak, was a pretty deliberate activity. You know, you went to a computer that was in your home or in your office. You didn't have this mobility that broke sort of that that behavior of, okay, now I'm going to shop online or now I'm going to go to a store. Now you can be shopping anytime you want. So again, I mean, this has been a pretty steady progression. This didn't happen overnight. But I think these forces mm-hmm. in terms of consumer behavior, mobile shopping, better websites, new business models that weren't so stuck in this siloed world, that all kept building. And I think what COVID did was it certainly accelerated more of this digitally-led shopping behavior, uh, but it also made clear when stores were closed or largely closed that Mm. customers do value the immediacy of a store. MarketDial is an easy-to-use testing platform and boldens great decisions, leading to reliable, scalable results. With MarketDial, you can be confident in the outcome of your in-store pilot initiatives before rolling them out across your fleet. In a challenging retail climate of supply chain disruption, labor shortages, and dynamic customer behavior, the need for reliable insights has never been greater. Validate your remarkable ideas with MarketDial's in-store testing solution. The proof is in the testing. Learn more at MarketDial.com. That's MarketDial.com. You know, we saw so much curbside pickup 
buy online, pick up and store type of activity just spike like crazy. And yeah. stores had to respond to that. The other thing which has been building pre-COVID, but again, was just kind of put at a whole new level is these this battle for convenience. And even if you have two or three large distribution centers and, you know, great rates with FedEx and all this, this kind of stuff, you know, there, there's just cost and time uh, challenges from shipping all of your products from a centralized distribution facility. And so some retailers said, well, gee, you know, we don't have to think about as having two or three distribution centers in the country. We've got 900 distribution centers or a thousand yeah. distribution centers because we have I mean, all that, these stores. <laughs> right. I mean, you've got this, I still feel or perceive this, this philosophical difference in when I have these conversations with the retailers, some feel like e-commerce pickup curbside bopus are expensive ways to use their existing property. Can't people just come and shop the way we built the store. And then I think others are, and this is what feels like you're talking about. Others are saying, well, this, this can be a very inexpensive way to handle the unit economics of shipping. Plus give it a strategic advantage. Why, why do you think it's taking retailers a long time to get sorted on that second way of thinking? I mean, you know, one thing that, I, you know, as I continue to reflect on the COVID era and what it's actually meant, and I don't think we know that yet, is, um, you know, demand for e-commerce went skyrocketed a couple of years in advance. It was always coming. So, you know, and as you know, in the old saying in retail, volume solves some sins. So now you've got some volume that make the things make sense. Is that all that it took? Was it the volumes would go up or is there more work here? Well, I think that's certainly kind of rubbed a lot of retailers' face in the challenge, so to speak. You know, when you didn't have your, when you had all this inventory, in essence, trapped in these stores, mm. and when consumer behavior shifted so abruptly and you've got all this new traffic to a website, it's pretty hard to ignore that. It's really in reaction to uh, some changes, you know, many of which we're already seeing kind of a regression to the mean or at least some moderation. Sure. So, yeah. um, sure. but I think the thing that's kept, and I'm, I am a little bit like a broken record on this, but I, I think a lot of it is cultural and organizational. And in some cases, the way the systems are set up because so many existing retailers, uh, have, have largely built these silos between brick and mortar and digital. And despite all the discussion of omnichannel for nine or 10 years, there's still a lot of separation, a lot of metrics that are channel specific and, you know, organization and systems and, and, and so forth that have kept these separate. And some of the smartest retailers, the retailers that benefited from the COVID time were breaking down those silos and thinking about their stores more as a hybrid pre COVID. Um, but I think now as retailers look at the success that that Tractor Supply, Best Buy, Target, others have had from mm -hmm. things that they've been working on for years, that just causes them to go, hmm, maybe there's a different way of doing it. But if you just look at the data, it, it's not so much that e-commerce is growing in so much in the traditional way, i.e., order online, we ship it to your home. Mm -hmm. uh, so much of it has just been pushed to consumers wanting to go get it themselves, right? Or retailers just doing the math and to your point saying, well, actually maybe it's cheaper for me to fulfill from a store or I, it's cheaper for me to shave a day or two off of delivery time, which is becoming more and more important as a decision yeah. criteria. So I think the data is just overwhelming 
Um, but the resistance, I think, aside from the organizational and cultural resistance, is is the existing installed base, so to speak, right? If you've built a store for a singular purpose and suddenly you're going, oh, wow, you know, now I'm fulfilling 20, 30, 40% of my e-commerce orders from store, um, you know, whether that's shipping them or customers coming to get them. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, I'm getting a lot more buy online return to store, uh, and, you know, actually I'm starting to realize the marketing benefits, uh, to the brand from my store. Maybe I need to think about how I invest in my stores in a different way. So all these forces have been accumulating. Um, there's plenty of models, I guess, to look at now that are having some success that think about their stores in a different way. So, um, I think there's just waking up to a reality that's been brewing for a number of years. Let's talk about shopping centers changing, not really changing gears, but because you talk about this in the article. Would you agree that there's a future for A-class malls? What's your perspective around the future of, of malls, and then what do they need to do to be part of this future? So I think there are two fundamental dynamics going on with malls. Um, but to answer your question, I'm generally pretty positive, I guess, or at least mm-hmm. optimistic towards the A-malls. Uh, not everyone, but the majority of them, and generally sure. pretty pessimistic about all the other malls. Uh, the first factor is just in general what what I talk about in the book, which is that there's been this collapse of the middle. Most regional malls, both in terms of their location and the way they've put together their tenants, are really built for a totally different era that doesn't exist anymore. The change that they would have to undergo is very, very massive. So their ability to reinvent themselves at anything remotely close to what they've been doing, I think is is pretty much zero. So most of them are going to get bulldozed or massively repurposed. Mm-hmm. I think the the AMOLs, you know, they have a reason for being largely because they have unique tenant mix. They're in areas of great demographics, and so they can mm-hmm. carve out a place. They certainly have to evolve, but I don't think they need to have nearly the degree of, of change, you know, kind of by virtue of the collapse of the middle. But one of the things that I think mall operators are fundamentally missing is again, it's the same kind of dynamic for an individual store. They built those the the real estate, and, you know, sorry to make it all about real estate really, because it's not, mm-hmm. but just it's easy to visualize, right? Like they built those stores for the kind of consumer demand that existed a decade or more ago, generally. And uh, again, their their model was all about you go there to see stuff, pick it out, maybe get some sales help, and take it home with you. And that's still going to be a very, very important thing going forward. But the entertainment value of malls, the marketing and brand enhancement value of malls, the fulfillment uh, and service role of malls, just like it's changing its stores, it's changing for malls. And most malls have not even come close to dealing with this um, in terms of you know having centralized pickup and for, mm-hmm. for online orders. Or you know some of them moved to that in the COVID times. But you know again, it's in, and you know they're very built. The other thing that I think affects real estate, not just the malls, but the commercial real estate industry, is they're used to getting paid on a percentage of sales rung up in a store. But if your physical space has a significant role in driving your online business, that's just a flawed formula. You're going to have to figure yeah. out how to, how to solve for that and how to invest in those malls 
with the reality that they're they're building brands in the trade area, and not all of that is going to be reflected by what gets rung up in that store. Though I guess to their benefit, anything shopped online and picked up in store. I mean, this is where you get into the nuances of of who tracks what and what accounts for what. But if I if I'm in my local, I mean, there's a you know when we when we go beyond a malls, there's a lot of communities across North America with you know very good malls that are be yet B and C smaller community malls. How can they survive? I mean, could they not earn the revenue from uh, the many many? retailers that are in there, both local and Main Street and some anchors that, that generate online revenue shipped to those stores? In other words, can they turn it around? I mean, Well, this is where it gets down to, to some of the specifics. There are certainly some malls that are classified as, as B malls that could redevelop part of the property, you know, add a hotel, add apartments, add some other things that would take some of the space that's essentially dead and and not only earn some income from it, but mm. perhaps generate some incremental incremental traffic. But part of the problem for a lot of malls is there aren't tenants for that space, right? The the a lot of the sort of usual suspects, whether we're talking about anchors like Sears, JCPenney, and others, are pulling back so much. And a lot of the apparel players um, that had big presence in malls are also greatly consolidating and there aren't enough Pelotons and, and um, mm. Warby Parkers in the world to take that much square footage. So, mm. so it is, it is challenging. I certainly think um, if they've got great real estate and a lot of the good qualities of, of what makes for good real estate, there are some pr- pretty aggressive retenanting things they, they can do, but it's not going to be going to the usual, tenants that have, that have paid the bills mm. for the past decades. It's going to be new sort of tenants, whether that's restaurants or, or you know, entertainment or, or something yeah. like that. But it's, but it's pretty, mm. pretty significant. And, and certainly um, even a fairly mediocre tenant can generate a fair amount of online business. And if they can find, figure out a way to participate in that. But I think the challenges for real, a lot of the real estate is um, the amount of investment it's going to take to repurpose that I mean, I, I'm not trying to be too flip about the bulldozing it, but when you when you think about how much money it would take to repurpose uh, a mall that's very mediocre, then the question mm-hmm. has to be: Am I better off bulldozing sure. it and and doing something else entirely different with the space? And we're we're seeing dozens of those right now in the U.S. At least I don't know so much in Canada or other markets. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, certainly a little bit. I mean, what we see a lot of is is food districts, fitness clubs, um, you know, more of these large format type things. And and you've got some really nice B malls that that have carved out a nice representation in the community. And and it's really then about retenanting versus, right. you know, listen, you know, maybe we're just organically we're gonna have less fashion retailers, particularly after COVID. But you know, maybe they're different types. Maybe they're different types of retailers. Yeah, I you think know. one of the challenges that perhaps is a little bit unique to the U.S. is there was such a formula, and I, you know, having worked at Sears back in the day, Sears was a big, big driver in making a lot of this mm-hmm. happen. There was such a formula of building these big regional centers with three or four anchor, you know, department store anchors and a huge parking field. Now let's talk about flagship stores. You, you talk about a hybrid brand distribution strategy. I started to think about a role for flagships. You know, that the, is there a role for anything beyond just transacting? Like, is that now the primary role? Like, what, what do you mean by a hybrid brand distribution strategy in retail? Well, I'll mention briefly before I answer that directly. You know, if you think about at any, any given store, 
becoming more of a hybrid. So performing the role as as advertising, as a service center, you know, the traditional role of going get stuff and taking it home with you, um, buy online, pick up and store, all those kinds of things. And when you start to think about um, if you're a brand owner like Nike, you know, there's an aspect of your strategy which is very much about building the brand mm-hmm. and not worrying so much. I'm not saying they don't pay attention to it, but you're, you're building the brand and you're going to get paid off somewhat by people transacting in that particular location, but they may learn about your brand and go transact at other locations that you have that you own, but also you have wholesale partners. And so if you develop brand preference for Nike, you may then go and buy that at, at a wholesale partner. So I think the, this is not a terribly new idea of a, of a flagship store, but I think what we'll, we'll see more than just kind of the reinvention of the traditional flagship on, you know, on Madison Avenue or Fifth Avenue or the Champs-Élysées or whatever, um, I think you'll see this, this um, hybrid, hybrid distribution strategy where brands are saying, okay, we need to think much more carefully about our owned distribution, both our e-commerce and the different formats that we control. Uh, but also trying to get the right balance of wholesale partners. And this is a pretty big change. Mm-hmm. Again, a lot of this goes back to the evolution of e-commerce, where if you were a manufacturer, for the most part, you didn't have any real relationship with the end consumer. But the Internet, you know, from a marketing standpoint, but ultimately from a transactional standpoint, has allowed you to sell directly to those end consumers to get their names, to be able to do your direct marketing stuff. And, you know, that not only gives you more strategic control of your brand, but in many cases it gives you better economics. So Nike is the poster child for this, but, but many more manufacturers Mm. are really developing their distribution strategy in a, in a much different way than they were just a few years ago, which is again, it's still a tricky proposition though. I mean, Nike, it's good to be King Canada goose. Good to be King. Uh, in other words, you know, there is some fear, at least there is some perspective from retailers that I helped make your brand. And now, now that you've become a brand, you're off on your own and you're going to cut me, cut me off. Right. Sure. Right. Battle between retailers and the brand. Some brands are just as a pure brand. They're very good wholesalers, but they're actually not very good retailers. Because that's a whole different organization to set up. Um, so it, it, for some, it's an ambition. For some, I, th- I think it's still, you know, the vast majority for, for many is still done in stores. And, and how do you craft a strategy? And this is maybe this is a whole topic for a whole other episode. But how do you craft yeah. a brand strategy that, that gets you both a winning strategy direct to consumer and a winning strategy with your retail partners? Because you better be careful how far down that path you go because you could find yourself out in the wilderness in a bit of trouble. Yeah, I, I absolutely think it's it's worth a separate uh, episode because I think the the dynamics here have changed a lot. You have to be careful. I, I mean, I, I have had a couple clients in this arena is the retailers that feel like they're getting cut out by the brand and yeah. also working for a brand, a couple brands. I think if you're the brand, you have to really understand how you drive consumer demand, both in the short term and the long term. And you don't mm-hmm. want to get too greedy, I guess is the way I would put it. Yeah, yeah. And you got to be something different too, right? So I was, I was on this one site, I won't mention what it is, and, and they basically sell direct to consumer what they're selling at the retailer down the street. 
And I was thinking, okay, I, but I don't see anything compelling about that in and of itself, other than maybe you strip off a few, you know, ardent, dedicated customers. It, it really takes more thought than just I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull everything together and put in a DTC strategy. There's got to be a there there, I think. Yeah, I mean, if you're just everyone, like, hey, right? I want to cut out the middleman and make more money. That's kind of what I mean right. from a greedy standpoint. Like you could convince yeah. yourself, hey, now that I can go direct, maybe I should go as direct as I can because who needs these these pesky middlemen, right? If, sure. if that's your primary orientation, I think you're likely to get yourself into trouble. You really have to understand how you drive demand and think and think longer term because clearly plenty of customers value going to a multi-brand retailer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're not just Oh, the only thing I'm ever willing to buy is Nike or uh, Canada Goose or, or whatever. Like so, so if you narrow your distribution too much, you can really be underdeveloping the brand. Right. The flip or, side or is, if, that, or if the theme turns on you, right? So you're you're great now, but you know brands ebb and flow, right? It's yeah. very hard for every brand to have a run without a couple of soft years, right? Very and hard. you don't want to be having to. Uh, you probably aren't going to be too welcome. You go running back to your distribution partner saying, oh, take me back. I love you. I promise I'll change, right? (laughs) Right. So, yeah, I I think you absolutely have to look at this as a long-term strategy and and understand the risks. But the flip side, which I've said to some of the retailers that are complaining basically about some of their brands going direct is, look, the reality is, particularly if they're public companies, they have shareholders, and they're going to do what's in their economic long-term interest. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot... A lot of strategic advantage to controlling your destiny, as well as money to be made if you can appropriately um, expand mm-hmm. your direct-to-consumer business. And certainly, if you look at Nike's results, for example, the results are amazing. So now that doesn't mean they'll always be amazing. And Nike right. is a very special kind of brand. So yeah. not everybody can try to do what Nike's doing. Um, in fact, very few could. So so you have to be very careful. But I think the. Again, you know, one of the fundamental changes by through by virtue of of e-commerce and by bar- virtue of consumers having this world of choice at their fingertips is that it just allows for a whole different way for consumers to kind of switch things up to blend what they want. And if retailers are really built for an age that doesn't exist anymore, or brands are built for an age that doesn't exist anymore, they're going to have to respond. And, you know, part of what I argue in the article is, you know, this can require a lot of change. And most mm. retailers are not very far along on the journey. Uh, well, let's, let's wrap up in terms of this, what this all means to the listeners. Like if you're a retailer, you're a brand listening thinking about this hybridization of retail how do you get your arms around it's a big task you've just got your arms around surviving hopefully through covid now what are you going to do to make that business thrive as we go forward what what do you recommend a couple of things that they should do to get their arms around this new reality that is that is modern retail well to a certain degree i think the main piece of advice i would have at both the store level and at the a trade area or market level is to really kind of start from scratch and look at consumer mm. behavior, look at what's going on with fulfillment and say, okay, if I had to do it all over again mm. and I was going to open a new store or let's say I was going to open a new market, how would I ideally deploy in 
you know, my given store and a given market. So if I were going to build a, let's just say it's a 30,000 square foot store today, where would it be? How would I configure it? What are the different services and roles that store would have to fulfill with that, with that overall lens of the different roles that stores might be uh, providing for you? And similarly, mm-hmm. if I look at a given metro area, I would say, okay, well, maybe I've got f- five stores in the market, but, and they're probably all pretty much the same. But if I had to do it all over again, would I deploy in a different way? You know, would I have one flagship and six satellite? Oh, that's interesting. that's interesting. Would I, you know, say like a Nordstrom does with their, mm-hmm, some mm-hmm. listeners are probably familiar with, they, they basically have the full version Nordstrom, they have an off price version and they have these local or they're starting to have these local stores, which are service only. We're seeing some retailers do, you know, fulfillment only stores versus, you know, basically consumer facing stores. So I, I would say, you know, strip it down. <laughs> if I had to do it all over again, what would my store look like or my stores look like? What would my deployment strategy look like in a given uh, market? Now, that's probably for many retailers going to be really different from what it looks like today. But I think starting with that blank sheet of paper and thinking about that for the future can provide some really good, some really good guidance. And if it turns out that you have a bunch of leases that are coming up or opportunities to perhaps mm-hmm. redeploy your real estate in a more significant way, not only, you know, a given type of store format, but like I say, the whole, whole market, at least you've got a sense of where you'd ideally like to get to, and then you can kind of work backwards and start to say, okay, well, you know, in terms of investing capital, in terms of reconfiguring. But then, you know, that's going to lead you, you know, the crazy thing and the complicated thing, which is why I say this is really big and hairy in the article, is that's almost certainly going to lead you to thinking about your supply t- your supply chain strategy, your technology strategy, your... Touches everything. You know, Touches everything. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the, role, the role of a store is... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, you know, to try to get your arms around it, I think you kind of have to break down to kind of unbundle and then maybe rebundle, um, your, your strategy and, and just kind of lay out a, a sequence. And, you know, for some retailers, it's going to be much more urgent, um, mm-hmm. than, than others, right? So everybody sits in a little bit different place. Well, I think it's great advice because it, it reminds me of, um, that moment in, in Al Gore's movie about the environment um, where he said, listen, uh, climate change is so massive, it almost feels too overwhelming. You can't do anything. But the reality is you can chip away at it right. and, and, and eventually you reach this, this point of critical mass where you've not just chipped away at it, you've made a meaningful difference. So start at the beginning, right? How would you reconceptualize the store? What would it look like today? Can right. we do that in, a, in an entire market? Maybe we try, you know, that that kind of you know, take it on um, one step at a time without getting too overwhelmed by the, as you say, the, the, the big hairiness of it, the enormity of the change. Well, first of all, I think it can definitely inform some testing of formats um, or standing up maybe some different fulfillment or, or what have you. Um, but the worst case scenario, and the thing, frankly, I'm most fearful of, and you know, mm-hmm. I've been saying this for a while, but I think as I've dug into this hybridization issue, it creates a different sense of urgency, which is the, the worst case scenario is you keep trying to polish what you have, which mm-hmm. is already decidedly mediocre. So if, if retailers are re-upping leases and they're painting walls and putting in some new fixture, putting in a coffee shop, 
you know, a little store in a store or whatever, and thinking like that's the investment that's going to get them to the next level, they're probably just delaying the inevitable. So without this mm-hmm. kind of stripping down to the studs or whatever expression you want yeah, to use, yeah. thinking more creatively, you may not see some of the um, the realities that you have to deal with. And, you know, like I said, I mean, it's this is not going to be an existential crisis if they don't, you know, for every retailer like, Oh, if I don't start working on this very aggressively in the next few months, I'm out of business. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that though for some it might. Um, but you know, you, you constantly have this decision about how to invest your time and energy, what technologies you yep. want to lean into, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if you don't have that clear view of where you think you might need to get to over the long term, you're likely to make some, some perhaps irreversible mistakes, not to play out the, uh, the climate change thing too much. Yeah, I guess I guess it harkens back to something you you quoted in the first book, and and the second is that that best time to plant a tree philosophy, right? Um, you probably should have been working on this twenty years ago, but the next best time to start working on this is tomorrow or right. today, right? Yeah. If you like what you heard, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, your favorite podcast platform, so you can catch up with all our great interviews, including Hal Lawton talking about Tractor Supply's remarkable life out here growth story. I'm Steve Dennis, author of the best-selling book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption. You can learn more about me, my consulting, and keynote speaking at stephenpdennis.com. And I'm Michael LeBlanc, consumer retail growth consultant, keynote speaker, and producer and host of a series of retail trade podcasts, including this one. You can learn even more about me on LinkedIn, and you can catch up with Steve and I in person at the NRF Big Show in New York, January 16th on the stage, talking about what it takes to be remarkable with Container Store SVP Gretchen Gantz. See you in New York, everyone.